0: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, product architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, how's it going?
1: Great. Not bad. How about you?
0: Not too bad. Not too bad. I'm excited. We have a special holiday week edition of the Crypto Brief. If you're listening to this, one or more of us may be on the beach right now, <laughs> and it's pre-recorded. I hate to. I hate to be a spoiler. <laughs> so really excited to have uh, have you all here today. Um, we're gonna we're gonna spend some time diving into um, crypto bridges. Um, it's something that we've discussed in past sessions, um, in passing. You know, related to other news stories, but really wanting to kind of take a step back and, and maybe do a little bit of level setting around what they are, how they work and, and why they're important. I think let's just dive in. Jason, do you mind just right at the top, just taking a few minutes explaining what they are um, and maybe you know for those who are not as kind of crypto native, what a traditional finance comparison might be? Sure,
1: thanks, Ryan. When we think about bridges in the context of, of DeFi and blockchains, they're really mechanisms that allow for the transfer of tokens between different blockchains. And you may ask, what does that really mean? Well, people may choose to move an asset from one location to another, for a variety of reasons. They might be looking for liquidity, or they might be looking for an opportunity to transact at lower costs, or even just find a, a way to try and move off of the layer one chain and onto a layer two chain. Now, A lot of the bridges allow for the transfer of the value, but the way that they allow for that and mechanically operate differs. I know Parth is going to cover that a little bit later on, but when I think about these blockchain bridges, my mind draws comparisons to uh, traditional securities. We think about multi-listed securities where you might have an equity that is eligible for settlement across more than one securities depository. In this context, I would consi- I would compare a blockchain to a, a security depository. And again, not implying that blockchain assets are securities, just drawing that parallel. So if I have an asset and I want to trade with a broker dealer, but my asset is in a US depository and the broker dealer wants to settle in a European depository, we have to agree to that when we actually execute a trade. And I might have to take an extra step between the trade and the settlement to move that asset to the depository where it's going to settle. So I see in many ways that the bridging of assets from one layer, one blockchain to either another layer, one or a layer, two being somewhat similar to that multi chain. So multi listed security or uh, sometimes we, we refer to different types of assets, such as depository receipts, where you can create an asset exposure to an equity that's trading in one country, but you make it available to residents of another country. An example there might be like an American depository receipt or an ADR that represents an equity interest in a security that's issued offshore. So hopefully that helps create a little bit of a comparison to some existing rails.
0: That's really helpful. Just just one follow-up question on that though. So in that case, you gave the example of ADRs, does a share exist in parallel you know, on the native exchange or within the native depository, or is it truly you know, kind of a, like an additive asset
1: with no share backing it on the native? Well, I'll
0: say the native chain, but
1: you know what I mean? There is in fact an asset that is backing it. So you're basically just locking it up in one location in order to create i a, a, I'll call it a synthetic version or a replicated version that's available in a different location. But yes, you do want to have that backed one for one. Otherwise, you're transacting essentially what would be considered something like a contract for difference. You might use an asset as a reference point as opposed to having it backed.
2: Oh, that's that's great. That's really helpful. Speaking of analogies, I I also have one. So so I think bridges are actually pretty close to what like real world construction bridges are. So so you have one uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, which connects uh, Manhattan to Brooklyn, and. Um, if there is no connection, uh, these cities are sort of uh, siloed environments. Incidentally, if you watch any superhero movies, uh, you also know that bridges are sort of the weakest link. <laughs> they kind of get destroyed first uh, if you watch like any of the action films. But uh, so that's why I feel like that's a good analogy on how how important bridges are and how susceptible they are.
0: We might come full circle on that analogy when we talk about the risks later. <laughs> um, so So just... Kind of to move forward, I'm curious um, to get your guys' thoughts on what people are using Bridges for right now and and what the real value to users is.
2: Parth, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So a lot of people use Bridges to take the benefits of low transaction fee on other blockchains. So uh, if I remember correctly, my first bridge was when I converted some of my ETH to Polygon since I wanted the benefits of cheap transaction fee. Some of the other use cases are that if you want to specifically use decentralized applications, which exist in other blockchains, like there's this game called DeFi Kingdoms, which you could play only on the Harmony network. So there was no way for you but to bridge uh, some of your funds to the Harmony blockchain. Um, so if you want to use different decentralized applications on other blockchains, that's when you need bridges. Um, and then the third is when you wish to own native crypto assets. So let us suppose that if you want to get some Bitcoin exposure uh, on Ethereum, you'll use uh, Wrapped Bitcoin or WBTC. But if you really want the real deal, then you would bridge your assets to the Bitcoin blockchain. And for that, you need a connection. uh, And that's where bridges come in. So it's
0: really about offering optionality to users on the protocol in which they're transacting or trying to do something, right? Exactly.
3: I would add, if I can interject that, if you're to believe that we'll live in some sort of a multi-chain future, right? You could you could argue we live in a multi-chain now today, uh, but if if we do live in this world where there are different ecosystems making different trade-offs, then connecting those to one another via you know what we're talking about today, bridges is critical. Because crypto isn't truly like decentralized or trustless unless you build mechanisms to go from one ecosystem to another in a trustless manner. If you have to go to a centralized intermediary to get from, you know, one area to the other, then it's not really trustless. It's only trustless in silos, but then connecting those silos, which which we're talking about with bridges, is like very important if you're talking about, you know, living in a multi-chain world.
0: All right, that is that is the perfect transition into what I wanted to talk about next, and that's trust dynamics within bridges. So so Parth, do you mind providing an overview? I know there's there's really two camps primarily uh, where these bridges fall, um, maybe just a bit about each and how they work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So within bridges, with respect to the trust vector, you have trusted bridges, and then you have trustless bridges. Now, when you use a trusted bridge, you are essentially using a central authority for most operations. So the idea is that users need to deposit funds and the trusted party holds their funds uh, and then they can basically port over their assets on the other chain. So some of the really uh, popular bridges which use a trusted setup uh, are multi-chain uh, or the Binance bridge, or if you remember, uh, the Axie Infinity Ronin bridge was also, it also had a multi sig setup. And uh, so that's essentially a trusted bridge. And then another category is the trustless bridge, uh, where basically you remove trust by using smart contracts or protocol algorithms, uh, and they do not require any sort of central authority. So uh, some of the uh, really popular trustless bridges are the Connext bridge or the HOP protocol. I guess a question on that. Do,
0: are, there, are we seeing adoption on one more than the other presently? or utilization in terms of like volumes going across these bridges? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think in terms of volume, more people like to transact on trustless bridges, but the UX of uh, trust bridges are so much superior. So um, uh, so it, it really depends on like what trade-offs you want to make. If it's just the UX that you really care about, you would go to, let's say, a Binance bridge or a multi-chain bridge. However, if you want uh, the trustless bridge, where you also sort of undertake a lot of smart contract risk, a lot of technological risk, then you would choose something like a Connect or a HOP protocol. In in part, to hear you say that, it, I'm
1: reminded of the fact that sometimes it's a fit for purpose. So depending upon someone's sophistication, they may choose for a, a, an easier transition. Maybe it's not as decentralized, or maybe they might pay a higher fee than they would otherwise. I, I don't know. But I, I sort of think about it in this context and say, well, where are people bridging to and does the location of their source and destination define which bridge they may use?
0: Yeah. And I think like the the usability or or maybe lack of usability speaks to just the nascency of these projects. Right. Um, and, and usability in crypto in general is, is continues to be a challenge. Right. Where, you know, we go back to can can my grandma transact in Bitcoin and I think the answer is like, well, maybe, whereas opposed to like five years ago, it was like, definitely not. And so I guess the hope is eventually with the evolution of these projects is to kind of enable that usability so that, you know, the ideal end state would perhaps be being able to move an asset from one blockchain to another without even really knowing kind of the mechanics that are happening in the background. Whereas now you know, it's still a fairly kind of complex, sophisticated thing to do. And you really need to know what you're doing in order to interface with these bridges.
2: Yeah, I think it's also about um, educating yourself on what kind of bridge you're using. Because to a normal person, a Ronin bridge or a multi-chain bridge would be pretty much the same as a hop protocol or a connects protocol. So it's also important for these bridges to be sort of upfront about what mechanism they use. And I think it's it just comes back to UX on how, how people know what trade-offs they're getting into when they use any of these bridges. Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's pause here, because I know we had talked a little bit about interoperability in a previous session. Um, And I think it's just worth noting that what we're talking about here maybe isn't really true interoperability. And I know there are some projects that maybe are classified as bridges, um, but aren't really bridges and are maybe a step in the direction of interoperability. What we're talking about here is really being able to port assets from from one chain to the other for use on that chain right whereas to me and i'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts on this interoperability really implies that the protocols themselves are
3: are interoperating or talking to one another do
0: you agree i mean am i missing something there
3: i would agree where it's almost like the user and To to sort of like Parth's point before, a lot of times I don't think people realize if the bridge that they're using is is just a trusted multi-sig, if it's a, a centralized custodian on the back end, or if it's, you know, some sort of, you know, nuanced smart contract reliant trustless system. And like, there's obviously differentiation and different risks being taken, but a lot of times users just don't care when they're interacting with it. But to, to your same point with interoperability, do we get to a place where users have a nice front end and then on the back end, they don't care and they don't have to know what's going on in terms of interoperability and how things are being optimized for, you know, whether it be transaction fees or, or speed of transaction or whatever, you know, whatever application uh, or chain that they're using, it's all just happening sort of on autopilot without them knowing. And we're obviously like sort of light years away from that, um, but it'll it'll probably come sooner than, than it seems. I'd agree with you, Jack, because I, I think about some of the stats that I was researching leading
1: up to this podcast. And I read that uh, more than 80% of the bridged volume today from Ethereum is going to the likes of Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. And I think about those as being uh, layer two type technologies but they all operate differently now i could use a common theme of a bridge but i'm getting to different destinations where i can affect similar transactions but one transaction wouldn't necessarily be processed the same way across those three other uh, destination chains or destination protocols so i think it's really important to distinguish between access
2: versus interoperability i think jason that's a really good observation and just to add to that, I think there is a reason why um, L two bridges are more popular uh, than these multi-chain bridges, and the reason the reason is that their security assumptions are so much more stronger. So L two bridges give you more security guarantees compared to using, let's say, a Solana to Ethereum uh, bridge or a uh, Harmony to Ethereum bridge. Why is that? So let's suppose that you are porting your Ethereum. Um, from the Ethereum blockchain to optimism, right? So the L1 blockchain has the custody of all your funds and the bridge must be convinced that the L2 protocol is not compromised and only then you can fully function and make do operations on the the L2 bridge. So in the worst case scenario, the bridge itself will self-enforce the layer two protocol's liveness until all the funds can be withdrawn. And so that's why L2 bridges are the are one of the most powerful bridges that do exist, which actually makes sense. I think we should also maybe talk about uh, different ways on how assets are moved across different types of chains. And maybe maybe a good segue would be to understand how these assets can be moved from one place to another.
0: Do you mind just giving kind of a brief overview of the of
2: the different types of bridges? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of classification on how assets are moved, uh the first one which comes to my mind is a lock and mint protocol which basically means that you lock your assets on chain 1 and then you mint new assets on chain 2 so some of the examples are polygon or or the avalanche bridge which basically means that i lock my assets on the ethereum main chain and then i mint new assets uh, on on the polygon chain uh the second is burn and mint right so that's commonly adopted by uh, con- uh by protocol and a cross protocol but the idea is that you burn your assets on the source chain and then you mint new assets on the destination chain Uh, and so i'm sure uh, you guys know but for those of you who haven't heard about burning before uh, burning tokens is a technique where you verifiably send your money your crypto to an unknown public key which basically means that no one can access those funds ever and they are permanently burnt or they are permanently lost Um, And then the third one is atomic swaps. So atomic swaps use smart contracts, uh, such as in the case of uh, the Connects protocol. Uh, But again, if you're using smart contracts, you also have the smart contract risk vector there. Uh, But these are some of the classifications, and we can also talk about IBC. Um, I I wonder if uh, Jack or Jason, if you have any thoughts about IBC or the inter-blockchain communication protocol.
1: Yeah, maybe I can start. I think it's an interesting dynamic because it's almost like a common foundational technology that is used, uh, I believe the Tendermint software development kit, and you have a number of different layer ones that have this shared code and and shared infrastructure that allows them to have something a little bit closer to interoperability than some of these other cross-chain bridges. And you'd almost look at it as if it, it shares a family tree, so to speak, in terms of technology. And as a result of that, it's easier for information and assets to be transacted across those different technologies. So as I understand it, you could have an asset that's created on one Tendermint chain, and you could easily move it to another Tendermint chain and conduct transactions. So you don't necessarily have a, uh, we'll call it a a lock in mint or a burn in mint type model. It's more portability.
2: That's exactly right. Um, Absolutely. So I think a lot of people confuse with IBC as a bridging protocol, but it's it's actually so much more. So uh, so when you use bridges, you are typically specifying how many tokens you wish to port from one chain to another, or you can say, hey, I wish to port three NFTs from one blockchain to another. But uh, using IBC, you can b- literally pass like transaction data into the other blockchain, which can be executed on the destination chain. So it's I think it's almost like a Swiss knife for um, cross-chain communication. And that's why I I think I'm really excited about more um, IBC adoption.
0: Just taking a step back, is there a reason why you would want to use a bridge that kind of employs lock and mint versus burn and mint or vice
2: versa? Like, are there, are there trade-offs with these different types of bridges? I don't know any specific trade-offs on why you would choose one over the other. It's just the design and how complex these bridges are. So barn and mint are typically uh, are more complex versus using a, a lock and mint uh, sort of uh, architecture.
3: Wouldn't you argue that, you know, a, a lock and mint where you get a synthetic representation of that asset is now creating some sort of a trusted multi-sig effectively? And so you have some sort of counterparty risk of those assets. So whatever, wrapped Bitcoin or, you know, wrapped ETH on Solana Like there are explicitly, you know, groups of people, signers that are then trusted to act in good faith, to maintain, you know, the underlying collateral that then is represented on that other blockchain.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could say so. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think like just with my own mental model, right, I can no pun intended, more easily trust a wrapped token that is, you know, has a, a, you know, a twin token that's sitting somewhere, presumably in safekeeping. Right. Um, And that the token that I'm holding represents an ownership right to that token. Right. Whereas I think I struggle a little bit more. And, and this is just my own kind of view um, with, with the model where you're burning the asset. So it's no longer in existence and, and you have this token that represents that asset that was burned, but but that's it, right? There there is no asset there anymore. And that's just like a really interesting kind of mental model to to get comfortable
1: with. Hearing you describe it that way makes sense to me. But one of the ways that I've processed this is when I think about something like the burn and mint, I think of a barter economy. I give up this for that. I think one of the differences is when you give up the source token for the destination token, it's actually being eliminated. So there's no longer utility of that token. So you've converted it from one thing to another. Mm. And when I think about the lock and mint model, I think about it almost as if it's a collateralization so that when the source asset is locked on its main chain in a smart contract, so locking it up and then allowing for the synthetic asset to be minted on the other chain, if you're essentially minting a wrap token, a synthetic version of what you've locked on the origination chain, it's a one for one. So you don't have a, a margin management risk. You just have a utility option. And if you want to go back to the main chain, you can then burn the token that you've minted on that, that wrap token and unencumber the token on the original mainnet. So I know one's more like barter, the other one's more like collateral management. So I think barter borrow, maybe. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's a that's a very nice way of packaging it. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
0: far more far more articulate
3: than I what I was trying to trying to say.
0: All right. So so oh,
3: go ahead, Jack. Well, Ryan, I think that this gets to like the the third category of atomic swaps, right? That I think we did, we haven't really dove into where it's like, okay, well, how do I transfer value from blockchain A to blockchain B? It's not to carry over of synthetic representation of blockchain a's asset to blockchain b rather it's to somehow find a way to swap blockchain a's asset for blockchain b's asset and that would be something like atomic swaps or or liquidity pools on uh, a cross-chain decks those types of things where then you're not actually carrying any level of counterparty risk except for you know in that moment of swapping right and then you have the risk of you know chain a while you're holding asset a and then, you know, some sort of a, a risk associated with the actual swap. And then you have the risk of only chain B and you're sort of, it's the same as taking your asset from chain A, you know, sending it to an intermediary and swapping to chain B. Yeah.
1: I suppose the big, oh, sorry, right, Jack, for those who may not be familiar with a cross chain DEX, can you just describe
3: what that is? Yeah. Really just the idea of like something like Uniswap only instead of Uniswap, you know, only allowing you to trade ERC20 tokens for other ERC20 tokens. It's obviously a lot more complex, but trying to get other you know different blockchains, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh Binance, you know, whatever, name the blockchain to con- to be able to communicate to one another by saying, you know, user is sending in Ethereum, you know, user wants to receive Bitcoin, and then once that transaction is received then you know whatever the process is you know not naming a a specific protocol but then being able to to swap out bitcoin for ethereum or whatever chain so on and so forth you know any asset for any asset kind of thing and this can be done like i think parth could talk about atomic swaps as well where you know liquidity pool model is just the idea of having readily available assets we've also seen like atomic swaps and and maybe Parth, you want to explain atomic swaps as another way of sort of making these trades.
2: Mm-hmm. The whole idea of using atomic swaps is by using HTLCs, hash time locked contracts, and that's a different rabbit hole. But coming back to what you were saying, essentially getting a cross-chain uniswap is sort of the, the holy grail. And I know a few protocols like uh, TorChain or Osmosis are specifically working on solving this problem. But I, I think this is also a pretty good segue to talk about how, some of these complicated structures also come with a lot of risk, and and maybe if you guys want to talk about how risky bridges are. Personally, for me, when I'm using a bridge, like I genuinely feel nervous when I'm like porting my assets from one place to another, unless I'm using a, a layer two. Yeah, great segue. Obviously, in the last year or so, there's
0: been some really notable hacks, right? Or you know instances where vulnerabilities with these bridges have been exploited and, you know, significant funds have been lost. And so you kind of you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Parth. Like there are risks associated with these bridges, primarily due to their complexity. And so yeah, I just curious to get your guys' thoughts on like what those what those risks are and what users should be looking out for um, if they're thinking about um, you know, interfacing with one of these bridges, with the usual disclaimer that you always need to you always need to do your own due diligence, right, before using you know any uh,
1: platform or protocol. I can maybe start out and then hand it off. You know, when I think about some of the exploits that have happened. There, are, there are different attack vectors that are exploited. So, in in some cases, we see that uh, the back end might be compromised. So, a protocol may be utilizing some infrastructure provider. And a a connection, and on and off ramp to that protocol might be exposed to some security design flaw or some uh, window where somebody can inject malicious code into the protocol. Um, Another one that I see in part, you were just talking a little bit about multi-sig, Jack, you as well. We've seen situations where hackers have been able to acquire through different means, could be phishing attacks or otherwise, where they get control or access to enough of the private keys within the M of N calculation that they can then go in and effect change. And lastly, one I think is really interesting in, in part, Jack, you guys may have even more uh, to speak about on, it's just the smart contract vulnerability. So you can have very well-written smart contracts that are coupled with a suboptimal implementation or you could have buggy smart contracts that could be exploited. Um, and it, it speaks to the, the very nascent nature of this industry. And that when we look at smart contracts, are they audited? You know, Are they verifiable? And there are different degrees of security and, and testing that go into them prior to them being utilized by, by mainstream users. So I think that's, when I think about it, those are the three main areas where there
2: have been vulnerabilities. That's a great point, Jason. I know we extensively spoke about the Nomad Bridge hack, which was basically a, a smart contract issue. Uh, good product, good team, but one small mistake where zero was said acceptable and then <laughs> we saw the uh, the decentralized crowd looting.
0: Yeah, so again, it, it's really... To your point, like it's really just a function of the nascency of these, these platforms, right? And you know, with time, you'll see like the continued hardening, but nothing about smart contracts is, is easy, right? And and I think you know that it's for now, you know, you just need to be cautious, right, when when using these bridges. Um and, and ho- hopefully over time they, you know, these stories, which seem we seem to be seeing almost every week, or we were for for some time. Um, you know, will become less frequent as as you know the the protocols become more robust and the code becomes more robust. Um, so with that, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, really appreciate your guys's uh, input this week, and for everyone else, I hope you have a really nice rest of your week. And we will uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Bye bye all.
1: Thanks. Take care. Thank yeah. you.
4: Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile can become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation, persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.